This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Revelation 22, you ready? Revelation 22, here we go. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. All but four take place under the curse of sin. 1,185 chapters in the Bible deal with life in this fallen, sinful, messed up condition and God's plan to deal with that. Only four chapters describe life without sin. The first two chapters in Genesis, the final two chapters in Revelation. For followers of Jesus Christ, the Bible ends with an emphatic note of triumph. We started looking at this triumph last week and we're going to bring it to a close today as we look at the final words in scripture. To sum it up, Revelation 21 and 22 is a picture of what the world looks like when God gets it the way he wants it. Now, I'm going to walk through verses 6 to 21, point out some things, sort of a Bible study, verses 6 to 21. Then we're going to come back and take a closer look at verses 1 to 5. So let's do this. Bible's open. Revelation 22, starting in verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, verses 6 to 21 form the epilogue, the conclusion, the closing argument. Bear this in mind as you walk away from this book is the way that we could read this. And as it comes to an end, the angel looks back at what John has revealed and written for us and declares it is trustworthy. It's true. These are the very words of God for us, for you, for your spouse, your kids, and they must be heard. They must be believed. They must be obeyed. Verse 7, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Every generation needs to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Every generation needs to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And again, we have got a striking parallel with these words and the words we read back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Since Jesus is coming soon, those who keep the words of this prophecy will be blessed. They'll gain an eternal reward. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. This is the second time John has been tempted to bow before an angel only to be rebuked. You know, at different times and in different places, Christians have had an unhealthy obsession with angels. 
Jesus is infinitely more interesting and worthy. So let's prioritize our passions accordingly. Verse 10, then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Don't hide the message of the book, he's saying. It deserves wide circulation. It's a prayer I have for our church. That you, that we will promote the wide circulation of not just Revelation, but this whole book. You'll circulate it into the lives of those you know. One of the things that's kind of a lost art these days is something called an evangelistic Bible study. Reach out to somebody who's not a Christian and just invite them to study the Bible with you. Hey, don't take my word for what Christianity is or who Jesus is. Let's just go to the book. Let's look at that. Let's look at that. Verse 11. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. In, in many ways, these words are unexpected. It's not discouraging repentance, obviously. Throughout the book, people are called to repent. On and on again. Repent, repent. We should be calling people to repent. However, I do think this verse is here to temper our expectations. As Christians, we need to understand that evil people have no desire to be cleansed of their filth or to depart from their unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul expresses the same thought in 2 Timothy. He writes, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. God's word's pretty clear that apart from him working in the hearts and minds of lost people, they're not going to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Calibrate your expectations accordingly. But we can't let that discourage us in our pursuit of Jesus. Verse 12, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I'll give to each person according to what they have done. The importance of our actions in this life are underscored again with Jesus, again, declaring his, the nearness of his return. Let's be prepared for Christ's return and remember that our works are a demonstration of the genuineness of our faith. That's what your works are there for. Verse 13, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Elsewhere, it is God himself who declares himself to be the alpha and the omega. Here it's Jesus. I am the alpha and the omega. He's the alpha. That is, everything begins with Jesus. He's the omega. Everything ends with Jesus. Creator on the front end. Judge on the back end. This is a God first, Jesus first world. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Back in chapter seven, we saw the great multitude who made it through this life and into the throne room of God, heaven. We were told that they had washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. They're the ones who have the right to the tree of life. The tree of life was withheld from Adam and Eve because of their sin. Now it's given to those who enjoy life in the garden to come, the paradise of God. Verse 15, in contrast, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So John gives us a sample of those who are not 
in the new heavens and the new earth, who are not in the new heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, who don't have access to the tree of life. He gives us a sample. The designation of dogs refers to unwashed robes, likely. Dogs were unclean animals. It's metaphorical. These people are unclean in God's sight. Those who have not had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. John mentions sorcerers who try to manipulate circumstances with magic rather than trusting God. He mentions the sexually immoral. Sexual immorality is a very broad term used to describe sexual activity outside the loving and benevolent boundary of marriage between a man and a woman. Those who give themselves to sexual sin do not entrust their bodies to God, but instead seek out pleasure in accord with their own desires. Those who murder deface another person made in God's image. They take justice into their own hands. Idolaters are also excluded from the new Jerusalem for they cannot inhabit a city characterized by the presence of a God they despise and refuse to serve. Lastly are those who love and practice lying. This is not lying in the way we use it typically today. It's an indictment of those who claim to be Christians but deny their profession by their lives. It's a warning that would hit close to home to the people living among the seven churches that are addressed in this book. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. So as this book rushes to a close, the importance of what is written is again stressed. Jesus himself addresses us, underscoring that he's the one who sent the angel to testify about all that, all that has been documented in the book. He's the one who sent them. They're urgent words. They're words that don't originate in the angel. They originate in Christ, and they're for the churches. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. It's an interesting call. The, the Holy Spirit, through the words of the book of Revelation and the bride of Christ, they're inviting people to come to Jesus. This is the invitation. Come. Come to Jesus. He pleads with his readers. John is pleading with his readers to come to Jesus before it's too late. Those who are thirsty are invited. They're invited to be filled, to, to, to find their needs met in Christ. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Adding or subtracting to the book changes the content of the prophecy. It alters its message. To do so is to distort the word of God. How serious offense is this? God himself says he will set the plagues described in this book upon the person that does that. Listen, your pastors work extremely hard to handle the word of God responsibly. We work hard. So should you. So should you. We don't want to be guilty of subtracting or adding to the book. Regardless of what it says, 
We don't want to be guilty of adding or subtracting to the book. We know the stakes. And then it ends this way. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Last words of Jesus in the book are recorded here. He is identified as the one who has witnessed to and verified the message communicated in the book. He reminds us of the urgency of the times and affirms he's coming soon. The end is near. Now flip back up to verse 1. Read verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. There are three objects that dominate the scene Here, we're going to look at these three objects. The river, the tree, and the throne. The river, the tree, and the throne. First, the river. Did you know that 40% of the U.S. population lives in ocean-bordering counties? 40% of the total U.S. population lives in a county that borders the ocean. Anthropologists are quick to point out that throughout the history of human civilization, oceanfront, lakefront, riverfront, waterfront, property was the first to develop population masses. Now, even in our sanitized world where water comes from a treatment plant through dependable pipes and faucets we turn on and off at a whim, we know we can't live without water. Water is life. As we proceed through these verses, you're going to see remarkable similarities to Eden. Heaven will be Eden restored. As an example of this, chapter 2, verse 10 in Genesis, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. This is life. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel was given a vision of this heavenly river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Englaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. The heavenly river, this heavenly river, is a source of thriving and flourishing. 
And notice it's bright or clear as crystal. It's free of impurity. And notice most importantly that God and the lamb are the source of this river. God and the lamb are the source of the river. Listen, longing for creation to be perfected cannot be obtained by taking a circuitous route around God and the lamb. If you long for your gardening efforts to result in a perfect crop, if you long to see the Rocky Mountains, the Caribbean Sea, the Milwaukee River perfected, yes, it's possible. (laughs) The direct object of your longing has got to be God and the Lamb. If you long for eternal life, God and the Lamb are the only source who can offer that to you. Everything beautiful originates in God. Everything pure originates in God. Everything colorfully vibrant originates in God. Everything tastefully delectable originates in God. Last week, I invited you to consider a scenario where you could have heaven with, with no sickness, no evil, with all your family, with all your friends, with all the delicious food you could ever eat, with leisure activities galore, with natural beauties and physical pleasures to enjoy. Could you be happy in heaven with all of this if Jesus wasn't there? One of the implications of the way in which this river is described is that that is impossible. It can't happen. It won't happen. A heaven with no sickness, with with delicious food and natural beauties and physical pleasures cannot exist without God. God is the source of every deep-seated longing we have. So longing for, for creation to be perfected cannot be obtained by taking a circuitous route around God and the Lamb. And it's not just a material creation free of blemish that originates in God and the Lamb. It's a life free of moral and spiritual impurity. Do you long for a tongue that blesses God and edifies people rather than insulting or tearing them down? God is the only one who can give that to you. You long for a heart free from idolatry. God is the only one who can give that to you. Do you long for a steadied mind that isn't prone to the raging winds of fear and worry and anxiety? God is the only one who can give that to you. Heaven is a very God-centered place. Nancy Guthrie interviewed evangelical Christian author Johnny Erickson Tata, Johnny was in a diving accident in 1967 when she was just 17 years old. It left her a quadriplegic. And in the interview, Johnny expressed an interesting perspective upon what she's looking forward to. This is what she said. She says, you look at me in this wheelchair paralyzed for 54 years. And most people would think, oh, you're looking forward to your new body. And yeah, that's one of those fringe benefits. But I'm looking forward to the new heart, a heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases, a heart free of fudging the truth, a heart free from hogging the spotlight, believing my own press releases, a heart free of not believing the best of others, a heart free of caving into fear or anxiety about the future. I can't wait to have a heart free of sin. 
This is what a woman, a quadriplegic for 54 years, longs for the most. A heart free of sin. Second, the tree. Notice this is the tree of life. Eden restored. Now this tree is remarkable. Twelve kinds of fruit. I have never seen a tree that bears 12 different kinds of fruit. Now I know this is imagery, but it's not imagery of nothing. What are the 12 kinds of fruit? As I'm reading this, I'm just dreaming a little bit. What are the 12 kinds of fruit? Strawberries. I know they don't grow on trees. Don't, let's not get all, don't, don't get all horticulturally legalistic on me here. Let's, let's dream. Strawberries. Blueberries, raspberries, apples, pears, mango, banana, watermelons. From a tree? Yeah, from a tree. (laughs) Grapes, kiwi, papaya, cherries. What are your 12? What are your 12? On a single tree. Willy Wonka, eat your heart out. Not only have I not seen a tree that bears 12 different kinds of fruit, I've not seen a tree that bears fruit every month of the year. Wow, this tree is abundant. It's accessible. It's constant. And it's of stunning variety. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? It's going to be a place of abundance, of accessibility, of constancy, and stunning variety. Notice something else about this tree. Verse 2, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Since there are no ills that will take place in the new Jerusalem, the wounds, the the ills that, that we're healed from are from life in this world. You know, we looked at this last week. One of the most beautiful things about Revelation 21 is that it has us entering glory with the tears of pain in this life still upon our faces, and it's God's own hand that will wipe them away. We've got more of the same here. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Think about this with me. Think about how even the strongest Christians depart this life, whether tragically during their early years or feebly in old age, with the scars of battle and the grief of our own character failings. Though we depart this life often battered and bruised, we will receive in the life to come the complete restoration of body and soul. In other words, God knows you're going to enter glory battered and bruised. He knows that. He knows that. And he's ready to treat you. Ancient travelers would arrive at an inn covered in dust, often their skin cracked by the hot sun. If you happened upon a friendly host in that inn, they would treat you with soothing oil. They would rub oil on your skin. Our Savior will do more for us in heaven. Not only anointing our souls with the oil of his spirit, but healing us with the leaves from this tree of life. There's no doubt you've accumulated battle scars from life in this world. You have. The death of a spouse, a child, a parent, debilitating illness or injury, Wounds of humiliation or ridicule, 
financial hardship, the absence of someone who is supposed to be there for you. You've accumulated wounds in this life. And God's waiting to heal that. Richard Baxter was a very effective pastor in England in the 1600s. His whole life, his whole adult life was spent battling one sickness after another. He was harassed by a constant cough. He had frequent nosebleeds, migraine headaches, digestive ailments. He battled kidney stones and gallstones. He once said that from the age of 21, he was seldom an hour free of pain. One of the effects of this suffering was to make him intensely conscious of how temporary life is and how inevitable death is. Once when he was 35, he was bedbound with one of his diseases, and at that time, he didn't think he would recover. And he began to meditate on the joys of heaven and the age to come in preparation for leaving this world. He focused especially on the hope of glory, and he began to write down his thoughts. To his surprise, he recovered, and his thoughts became a book entitled The Saints' Everlasting Rest. He took up the practice of meditating on heaven a half hour each day. Meditating on heaven a half hour each day. Because of the powerful impact it had on his life. And he commended the same practice to the readers of this book. He said this, if you would have light and heat Why are you not more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted. And your duty as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar. And see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire. And see if your affections will not burn be warm. Jesus knows we'll enter the new Eden with wounds that need to be healed. And they will be healed. And there will be no more wounds. There will be no more hurts to endure. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warm. Third and finally is the throne. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Watch this. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Perhaps the greatest of all eternity's blessings is reflected in this one phrase. They will see his face. Why is that such a big deal? Back in Exodus 33 in the Old Testament, Moses was speaking with God and Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God immediately said, you cannot see my face. 
for no one can see me and live. And then God told Moses that he would allow him to see his hind parts. That's the literal in the Hebrew. Hind parts, but you cannot see my face. I've always found this to be curious. God is spirit. He does not have a body like we do. Therefore, he doesn't have a face. So what is John saying? What is God saying to Moses? What does the face represent? Well, for Moses, clearly the face represents God's glory, his full glory. God himself likens seeing his face to seeing him. In other words, the face represents the full presence of a person. Think about the game changer in communication that happened when we went from being able to talk only on the phone with a loved one to being able to see them on Skype or Zoom. I'm an expert in this. My wife and I, before we were married, had a five and a half year long distance relationship. Is that right? Five and a half? Five and a half. Okay. This was back when MCI was our phone carrier. Okay. <laughs> Remember MCI? Nobody remembers MCI. Okay. MCI. And we were just chomping at the bit to talk on weekends because it was 10 cents a minute. <laughs> 10 cents a minute. So we, she's in, she's in Dayton, Ohio. I'm in Green Bay. Five and a half years of that. You know what? How would have been different if we had Skype? Huh? A little bit better? If you had the choice, would you go phone or Skype? You'd go Skype. I know you go Skype. <laughs> Why is that? We want to see their face. We want to see their face. We don't just want to hear their voice. We want to see their face. Because not to have sight of the face is to experience a diminished presence. God knows this. He's using categories we understand to communicate with us what heaven will be like. They will see his face. What awaits us is an unexperienced intimacy with the full, unfiltered presence of God, which we will take in through senses untainted by sin. That's what makes heaven special. See, the wonder of the new heavens and the new earth is not in the first instance that you might link up with loved ones who've gone on ahead. Undoubtedly, there'll be a reunion of the people of God, but the Bible says very little about such reunions compared with how much it says about the sheer God-centered, spectacular, unimaginable glory that will be ours forever as we contemplate God and all his perfections. All the other biblical descriptions of the final state, everything that is said in other parts of the Bible about the work that we will do, about our increased joy and responsibility and about the, the peacefulness of everything, as, as wonderful as these prospects may be, they pale in comparison of this vision of the sheer godhood of God, which consumes us and empowers us and leaves us perpetually transformed. A hymn from the late 19th century put it this way, face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Only faintly now I see him 
with a dark, darkling veil between. But a blessed day is coming when his glory shall be seen. They will see his face. What awaits us is unexperienced intimacy with the full unfiltered presence of God, which we will take in through senses untainted by sin. This is what makes heaven so special. The river, the tree, the throne of God, with the face of God. That's how things will be forever and ever. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around anything going on forever and ever without end. Woody Allen had a humorous way of putting it. Existence for eternity could get a little boring, especially towards the end. <laughs> the river, the tree, the face of God, life full and free of impurity, a place of abundance, constancy, variety, a place of healing, a place of holiness, a state of being wherein we are brought into the very internal life of the tripersonal God where we will know what it is to be infinitely happy. A place God in all his perfections mesmerizes us moment by moment. This is how things will be forever and ever. What will it be like? No, Mr. Allen, it won't be boring. How do you close a message in a series like this? How do you do that? I'm going to let C.S. Lewis do it for us. On the final page of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes about what happened after Peter, Edmund, and Lucy were killed in a train crash. Here's what he said. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. God, we believe everything you've told us in this book. We believe you are the Alpha and the Omega. Everything starts with you and everything will finish with you. We believe that you are moving human history to its appointed end that you determined long ago. We believe that you are meticulously ordaining the details of everything that unfolds in the world and in our lives. And through it all, you are beckoning us to come to you in trust, 
in devotion. Standing in awe of the Lamb, once slain, now standing triumphant. And God, we believe that you have heaven, a place for us. Where we will enter glory with the tears of life in this world still upon our cheeks, bruised, battered from life in this world. But you will heal us. And we will experience what it is to be infinitely happy. And Lord, we will look forward to living in that great story where each chapter is better than the one before. We celebrate that now. In Jesus' name, amen.